All right, now tonight we come to our 23rd study of the great doctrines of the Bible or the doctrinal structure of the Bible. And we are in the midst of studying the riches which belong to the Christian on the basis of Christ's finished work in the present life. We have also already considered justification, the past aspect of salvation, and seen that it is legal. That God is judged declares our guilt on the basis of the finished work of Christ when by God's grace we accept Christ as our Savior. But we must always feel very strongly that while it is so beautiful and so wonderful that our guilt really is gone when we accept Christ as our Savior, yet we must feel ex with great force, it seems to me, the fact uh, that this is not the end of the matter, but just the beginning of our riches in Christ. Because there are other aspects of our present riches in Christ besides the contemplation of that which is past in the sense that our guilt is gone. Now, it doesn't mean we can ever, we should ever minimize justification or forget that none of these other riches are ours until we have accepted Christ as our Savior and we are justified. But on the other hand, when the, when the guilt is removed, uh, we are then returned to the place for which we were created in the first place and we are seen to be, according to the teaching of the Bible, in the present life, in a personal relationship with each of the members of the Trinity now. Now, we have already considered uh, the fact that uh, the fact of adoption, as it is usually called theologically, that having accepted Christ as our Savior, God the Father, uh, becomes my personal Father. And now we are considering uh, in the new relationship which we have, our restored relationship with the three members of the Trinity, we are in the midst, you will remember, of studying our uh, relationship, our restored relationship with God the Son. And we have done this under the heading, we have given this as a heading, the new relationship identified and united with God the Son. And the theological terminology that's often been applied to this is the mystical union with Christ, the Christian's mystical union with Christ. And we have come down through many verses in the 22nd study uh, in the New Testament emphasizing uh, our union with Christ as soon as we have accepted Christ as our Savior. Now, beginning this 23rd study, we want to see some of the pictures the Bible uses, some of the pictures the Bible uses in bringing to us uh, the, the truth and the reality and the comprehension of what it means uh, to have a mystical union with Christ and to be identified and united with him. And surely the first of these pictures which we would choose and the one that gives the clearest illustration of what it means to have a mystical union with Christ in the present life is the fact that Christ is the bridegroom and the individual Christian is his bride. Now, immediately, one would feel in this an, an intense, intensely personal aspect that it, it is not a mechanical thing here. It's not that we are just... We have an abstract relationship to God. It is not even that we have a proper relationship to the right doctrines about God. This is something much deeper than this. 
It is a personal relationship. Now, we did mention last time, but I would like to say right here again, that it does seem to me that the Westminster Confession of Faith is very weak at this particular top point. Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is so wonderful in so many places, it does not mention at all our new relationship with the Son as a separate topic. It mentions it some other places along with some other things of its study. But it doesn't give the force, uh, which seems to me here, of the fact that just as we have become adopted and are the spiritual children now of God, the Father, the adopted children of God, the Father, so also the Bible makes this great emphasis, tremendous emphasis, on the personal relationship we now also have with the second person, the Trinity, uh, even the Son. Also, incidentally, the Bible does not give, the Bible does not give a, uh, uh, any, uh, the Bible, I'm sorry, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Bible gives a lot, the Westminster Confession of Faith shows another weakness, it seems to me, in not mentioning uh, anything about our new relationship with the Holy Spirit. So the, under the, it does have a special subject, adoption, dealing with our relationship with the Father, but it doesn't deal in a special way with our, our relationship, our restored relationship with the Son or the Holy Spirit. And I think this is a real place of weakness in the Westminster Confession of Faith. But as we come to the Bible itself, it is just opposite. There is this tremendous emphasis that the moment I accept Christ as my Savior, this does not mean just that I am uh, theoretically right, nor even just legally right, though we should be so happy that our guilt is gone on the basis of the finished work of Christ, but we immediately stand in this very strong personal relationship with, with each of the persons of the Trinity and in relationship to God the Son, uh, we have this beautiful word that he is our bridegroom, we are, uh, we are the bride. Now, immediately there's no possibility of a mechanical concept here. Uh, you can have machines having a mechanical relationship, but if there's anything in the wide world that has only a personal meaning, it is the relationship of bride and bridegroom, husband and wife. But especially under the terms bride and bridegroom, there's something living here. There's something in motion, something a dynamic in a, in a personal relationship. So it's something here which is not mechanical at all. Any concept of a mechanical relationship, is it must be denied. We must say no to it. And it isn't even a primarily legal relationship to God, although the religion, legal relationship is important in the justification but it is a personal relationship, a personal relationship with God the Father becoming Abba Father, as we have seen, a personal relationship with God the Son, even to the high level of it being pictured as the bride and the bridegroom. Now, in, true, in the true spirituality tapes, the Christian life tapes, uh, which, uh, will, uh, which really are a part, should be a part of the study of sanctification, in which we now are, but which are a separate study in themselves, uh, we go. We use this very much, this concept of the bride uh, and the bridegroom. But let us point out that the only reason it is usable in the area of the practice of the Christian life is because it is a real relationship. It is true. It is objective. In other words, it isn't just given in Scripture that this is a nice psychological uh, something, which is a tool. But it's, first of all, it is a tool which is really a, a, a tool of solidness because it is true. 
scriptural emphasis is you really are the bride of Christ if you've accepted Jesus as your Savior. Now we develop that in true spirituality and the Christian life and these other studies. But while we develop it, it is only developable, uh, if we could speak of it this way, simply because it is, the Bible says this is a fact. It isn't just a psychological, uh, a psychologically uh, clever tool, but this is right. That have you accepted Christ as your Savior of your hearing this lecture here or those listening on the tape? Have you really accepted Christ as your Savior? Then God the Father is your Father, and you are indeed the bride of Christ, and Christ is your bridegroom. Now, to look at some of the verses which emphasize this uh, matter of Christ being the bridegroom and we being the bride, uh, you, have Matthew, uh, you have the book of Matthew 22, uh, 2 through 14, if you just open your Bibles to there and glance down through it. I won't read all that, of course. Matthew 22, 2 through 14. The kingdom of heaven is likened to a certain king that made a marriage. It's really a marriage feast for his son, etc. So the picture here is, uh, is pictured as, uh, uh, as the marriage, the marriage. When you come to Matthew 25, 10, you can feel uh, the same force, even stronger perhaps. Matthew 25, 10. And when, they, and when they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Now here you have Jesus himself putting his emphasis upon being ready uh, in the terminology of uh, the, the, uh, the bridegroom coming. In Romans 7, 4, we have what is probably, seems to me, the strongest of the verses. And this is one, again, we have used uh, with real force. In the, um, in the true spirituality tapes, in the Christian life. So I'll not deal with it in, uh, in detail, but only mention, uh, read it to you, Romans 4. Wherefore, my brethren, ye are also... You, you, I'm sorry. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, in order that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, in order that, we should bring forth fruit unto God. Now this is, the, it seems to me, one of the most startling verses in the whole Bible, and one we would not dare to use if God himself did not use it. Because you have pictured here the relationship of the physical bride and the bridegroom, the human bride and bridegroom, and in their sexual relationship, bringing forth fruit, the children. And God himself uses this as a picture uh, of the fact that this is our relationship to Christ. That just as the bride must give herself to the bridegroom and then the bride brings forth a fruit and the fruit is the bridegroom's fruit through the bride, so also to the Christian as the Christian accepts Christ as his Savior and then puts himself in the bridegro bridegroom's arms uh, that Christ as the bridegroom will bring forth spiritual fruit through the individual Christian as the bride. It's a tremendous picture. Just saying in passing that, of course, when I've said that we wouldn't use it uh, unless the Bible used it, yet nevertheless this is perfectly normal in the biblical setting because in the biblical setting uh, the sexual relationship and its proper circle between 
bride and bridegroom between husband and wife is always pictured as something which can be dealt with without any overtones uh, of embarrassment. Now then, we could spend much time on this, but I don't want to. I'll just mention it here, and then, as I say, we will develop it uh, rather fully in the, in the study of the Christian life, which is the study in this whole long series which follows this one. Now, in 2 Corinthians 11.2, you have the same thing given, 2 Corinthians 11.2. Now, I... I was reading 1 Corinthians, sorry. 2 Corinthians 11.2. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Same thing again. Here we find that as a bride who loves her husband has her mind only on him. The emphasis is here would be in the direction of, so we being filled with love for Christ as our bridegroom, uh, having our minds fixed upon him and his finished work for us, he should take up our thinking. He should fill our thoughts. And in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, For this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall become be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. It is exactly the same thing again. That uh, the relationship which is the which is the crucial thing in the relationship of husband and wife, the unique thing, uh, is pictured here again as that which may be used uh, in the spiritual sense of the union of Christ and the church. Now, when you say Christ and the church, of course, in this particular place, you could be thinking of the whole church, and that's perfectly right. The biblical picture uh, deals with the bride in two senses bride being the whole church but the bride being also the individual christian this is not these are not mutually exclusive because the whole bride the whole church is made up of the individual christians of course and the relationship between christ and the church is not to the church merely en masse or faceless mass but he does know his sheep by name and his relationship to the church is to every individual in the true church those who have accepted christ as our savior but what we're doing at this moment is just picturing the strong way in which the picture is given. If I ask, well, what is my union to Christ like? What does it really mean? And then the reason, the reason theology is called the mystical union is because you can't, you can't explain it perhaps mathematically. But when you use the pictures, when you see the pictures, the Bible gives us of the union that I have as a Christian with Christ. I can understand. And the first of these is of the, uh, this great one of uh, Christ being the bridegroom, I being the bride, which removes all possibility of any mechanical relationship out of this. It is a personal relationship. It is a loving relationship. It is a relationship by choice and not by force. It is a relationship which is a continuing relationship. So if you take uh, the bride, how many times must the bride give herself to the husband? Well, she must give herself to the husband on the marriage day, or she's not his bride. That's parallel to our accepting Christ as Savior. But if there's to be children born in the home, she must by choice keep 
keep giving herself to the bridegroom or there's no children born in the home. So there is a once-for-allness and yet a continuing factor. Uh, there's not a mechanical factor. There is a choice factor involved. And certainly all these things are involved in the picture of our union with Christ. Uh, we must keep giving ourselves to him by choice. Is a loving relationship, a personal relationship, uh, if he is to bear his fruit through us. And then, of course, you have in Revelation 19, 7 through 9, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the culmination uh, in that great day, immediately before Christ comes back to reign on the earth for a thousand years. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And this really is the righteousnesses of the saints. Our preparation is that which we are in. We have given ourselves to him, and we have produced something for him. And he said to me, Right blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And this, of course, is is magnificent beyond words. And it's not to be pictured, it seems to me, at all uh, as uh, to be taken in any other way except a literal time. It's something for the future. There's a moment coming of the marriage supper, the real marriage supper of the Lamb. And yet, having said this, uh, it isn't just something in the future. We are now the bride of Christ. What then will be, we are now by faith to be. We are to let him bring forth his fruit through us in this intensely personal relationship and the almost the end of the bible in revelation 22:17, and the spirit and the bride say come and let him that heareth say come and let him that is a thirst come and whosoever will let him take of the water of life freely one of these great whosoever will verses but you notice who is giving the invitation the holy spirit is given the invitation but you notice who is giving the invitation the bride is giving the invitation it's the Christian uh, as the bride of Christ who is to give the invitation to a lost world to come and take Christ as Savior. So here we have the bride who has taken Christ as Savior. Our calling is to be busy inviting others to partake of this high privilege and honor. It should not be, it should not be difficult for us because surely one thing that marks the bride is that her conversation is filled with her beloved. If you have ever been around those who, if you've been around those who are about to be married and are really very much given to each other, one, you find their conversation tends to be tiresome as they talk about each other. You would think, I wish they'd talk about something else for a while. I just get, I'm sure they're the most wonderful couple in the world, but, but please, can't you talk about fish and nuts and soup for a while, something like this, and give me some air. We've all had this experience, but it's a beautiful thing to say. Well, now then, this is, this is to be our, our relationship to Christ. Our, our preaching the gospel, our going into the world to preach the gospel, shouldn't be construed as a duty. It shouldn't be seen as something we have to wind up uh, like a seven-day clock. It isn't something to release through clever and tricky motivations. The, the real preaching of the gospel should be in the relationship of the bride, being so full of the bridegroom that you just can't help but talk about it. Well, now, this is our call. Now, the second picture I would bring to your mind 
of the, uh, the mystical union, the picture that Christ gives us, God gives us in the Bible, so that we can understand, the, uh, understand a reality about the mystical union of Christ, even though it's something that couldn't be spelled out mathematically, yet we can really understand it as we examine these pictures that are given in John 15, 1 through 5, the fact that Christ is the vine and we are the branches. Now, this is more impersonal at first. That's why I began with the bride and the bridegroom. I don't think you can understand the, bride, the branch and the vine picture until, it has, or, until we already in our mind have the strong personal concept and loving concept uh, of the uh, bride and the bridegroom. And yet, as we examine the first five verses of this chapter with this in mind, we see that contrary to the, to the illustration itself, Christ brings in this personal, pers this personal relationship. I am the true vine, my father is the husband, and every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth, as it may bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean through the word that I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, severed from me, ye can do nothing. Now, Actually, here, like in, in so many illustrations, the illustration comes to an end. You have to take it further to see all that's involved. Because the, vi the branch has no choice but to abide. A natural branch has no choice but to abide in the vine. A branch can't will. I'm going to stop abiding tomorrow morning at 3 o'clock. It's a mechanical relationship. But Jesus takes the, the beauty of this and he enhances it and makes it closer to the bride and the bridegroom picture by this word, abide, abide, abide. Now, the word abide is a choice. It's a choice. So the first picture is the bride and the bridegroom. The second is Jesus' word in the branch and the vine. And as the life of the vine throws, flows through the flows into the branches and brings forth fruit. So those who have accepted Christ as a Savior have a vital union with Christ as his life, which throws, flows through us to bring forth the spiritual fruit. Strictly speaking, we never produce any fruit. He produces the fruit. Strictly speaking, the bride is not the one who produces the child. It's the husband's child through the bride in a certain real sense. In a very real sense, the apple tree does, uh, the branch does not bear the fruit. It is the, it is the, the tree as a whole, uh, the sap rising through it. And this, of course, is especially to be seen in the stock of the vine and then the grapes, which grow out here on the branches somewhere. But the branches are not producing the grapes. It's the vine that produces the grapes. Well, so it is with Christ. It, we do not produce the fruit. He produces the fruit. He produces it. And it isn't a mechanical thing again. It is a living thing. I must choose. I must choose yesterday. I must choose today. I must choose this evening. I must choose tomorrow morning, tomorrow afternoon. It is a, a living choice and a constant choice as well as the first one of having accepted Christ as Savior. Another picture that's given of the relationship of Christ and the church is that Christ is the head. 
And the church, those who have accepted Christ as Savior, the church is the body. <clears throat> In Romans 12, 5. Romans 12, 5. So we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. And here you have, uh, we are, there is a body. And Christ is the head. Christ is the head. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 11 through 27, you have this very strongly emphasized. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 11 through 27. But all these worketh that one and the selfsame spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. The body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For as by one spirit are ye all baptized into one body, whether ye be Jew or Gentile, whether ye be bond or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. That's the Holy Spirit, of course. For the body is not one member, but many. And it goes on down through this, if you glance down through. And in the 27th verse, Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. And as Christ is the head, and we are the body, it is the head who controls the body, of course. In our case, you you can sever an arm, but you cannot sever a head. It is the head that controls the, the whole. A spastic, something, a spastic person is a person in, who has a block between some portion of his body and his, the control of his brain. Well, we are, we are called upon to be under the control of the head. What the head is to the body, Christ is to be to the church, made up of many and yet there to be unity. The unity among the Christians should be a unity of each one having a proper relationship to the head. And as each one has a proper relationship to the head, the body will not be spastic. In those places where we as brothers in Christ have problems between each other, it's because one or both uh, in, are in some way is blocked up from the head. If, I have, uh, if a man has good coordination and the head controls both hands, he can bring his fingers together very simply. If he, there's a block in the left hand or the right, he cannot do this. He can't find his other finger. Well, it's the same with a Christian. The unity of the Christian is to be on the basis of each individual Christian being the proper relationship to Christ. Then the whole will be uh, a non-spastic whole. In Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, And have put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, the filth, all in all. He is the head. The church is his body. Ephesians 4, 15. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. That ye henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about, with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love, and grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Now, these shouldn't be just taken as meaningless words. They're not just to be uh, uh, little sketches on the wall. They're giving us something strong. Uh, they're speaking of our, of our uh, relationship to Christ. 
in a true mystical union, not in some far-off day in the millennium, but, but right now. Not just in heaven, but now. It's not that this is mutually exclusive about the millennium in heaven as opposed to now. But what's talking about is now. This is not to be just a doctrinal thing written on a wall somewhere and forgotten. It's not to be something that you go to a summer conference or camp and get stirred up about and come home and mean nothing. It's to be the reality of the hard stuff of life. In the midst of the hard stuff of life, in the midst of, of false doctrine, but in the midst of being surrounded with the hard, dirty stuff of life, Christ is to be the head. We are to be the body. In the reality of the difficult place, not to be spastic. So what we have here, if, you, if you're letting the Holy Spirit take these verses and speak to us, gradually we begin to say, oh yes, Yes, I understand something about the mystical union. I understand what the Bible means in theory and then see the practice of my, uh, my new relationship as I'm identified and united with God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. In Ephesians 5.30, For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. In Colossians 1.18, Colossians 1.18, and he, is the head, and he is the head of the body, the church. Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. He is the head of the body, even the church. So now we have Christ is the bride, the bridegroom. We are the bride individually. Christ is the vine. We are the branches. Christ is the head. We are the body. Another picture is given. Uh, in the in First Peter two, two through six, the Christ is the foundation, and we are the spiritual house built on that foundation. Now, none of these are you feel that they're not one. One of these illustrations again, they're not against the other. They supplement each other. When you put them all together, there's a tremendous feeling of strength. It seems to me of comprehension and of call in our relationship to the second person, the Trinity, in the present life. In First Peter two. Two through six. As new here, it isn't just a mechanical thing. It's not even in the relationship of foundation and house is there just a mechanical situation allowed. As there is no mechanical situation of bride and bridegroom, and no mechanical situation allowed. You know, Jesus presented it a branch and vine. No mechanical re relationship. Uh, either of the head and the church as it's presented. There is a call to, to give to the head his rightful place so the church will be what it should be. So it's not even allowed here in what would seem to be almost of necessity mechanical, uh, a foundation and a house. But if you read it this other way, which I think is the, it should be read here, uh, be built up. It's a command. Your lively stones, your living stones, that's what it means. You're stones of a different kind. Uh, a stonemason cuts a piece of stone, the stone has no choice. But we are not like this. God does not deal with us as sticks and stones, to use this expression. We are lively stones. We are living stones. Therefore, be built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore, as it is contained in the Scripture, say, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief uh, cornerstone, elect precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. And then it goes on. 
Now, there is one other picture that is given in this, and that is that Christ is the brother, usually spoken of as the elder brother. Now, many Bible-believing Christians have withdrawn from this because of the use that the liberal has made of it. The liberal likes to talk of Christ as our brother, in the sense as though uh, that removed him from his unique place as God. Um, well, that isn't... Just because the liberal uses it that way, which is out of line with the total thrust of Scripture, doesn't mean that we should give up something precious. In the book of Hebrews, the second chapter, verses 16 and 17, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but on him the seed of Abraham. And wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, in order that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. And there's no doubt here Christ is spoken of as brother, as a brother. Now then, we have here, it seems to me, we must see a relationship to the Father. So Christ is the natural son of the household. He is the natural son of God the Father. We, when we have accepted Christ as our Savior, we become an adopted child in that household. And Christ takes the place to us as a wonderful, wonderful elder brother after when we once take Christ as our Savior. He is tempted in every point as like as we are. He has taken our own nature upon him so that he might die for us. But insofar as he's taken our own nature upon him also, he is tempted in every point like as we are. He can comprehend, the book of Hebrews says, he can comprehend our problems, our temptations. So we don't have somebody who is far off. Again, it's this mystical union, this picture of, of a personal relationship, a, a marvelous older brother, always ready to understand and to take the older brother's place. So now these are the pictures the Bible gives us in the relationship, the, new, the restored relationship between the individual who has accepted Christ as a Savior, his guilt is gone, his restored relationship with a second person, the Trinity, identified, united with God the Son, a mystical union with Christ. Now, you remember a long time ago now in these studies, we studied about Christ as mediator. When we were studying about Christ as mediator, we saw that uh, he put to himself three offices, the office of prophet, priest, and king. He, the Son of God, took upon himself three offices in discharging his work as a mediator the office of a prophet, the office of a priest, and the office of the king. Now, once we, once we have taken Christ as our Savior, we are in this relationship with the second person, the Trinity, we have been speaking of. This mystical union, uh, this living relationship with the second person, the Trinity, we are identified with him, we are united with him. But, as you remember, we saw in the case of adoption, it's not to be thought of as a mechanical thing. Just what I've mentioned in going through some of this. It is something we have, but we are to make it a thing in practice through faith by laying hold of it. Well, now it's the same here. Christ, we are united with Christ. Christ is prophet. Christ is priest. Christ is king. And we have this living relationship with him. Well, now then, in faith, I am to practice this present riches which I have in Christ. And this means, from the biblical picture, that when I have accepted Christ as my Savior, as I let him bring forth his fruit through me, 
then the individual Christian, I as the individual Christian, I take on an office of a prophet. I take on an office of a priest. I take on an office of a king. It's very exciting, really. I hope it isn't dry. It shouldn't be dry. I've accepted Christ as my Savior. God the Father becomes Abba Father to me, first. Second, I enter into a living relationship with the second person, the Trinity. And I am called upon to exercise my riches in faith. The old phrase of the possession, possessing one's possessions. In faith I am to let him bring forth his fruit through me. But as I allow him to bring forth it through me, by choice, in this present life, the, my work then in this present world uh, takes on an aspect of prophet, priest, and king. Now the often of prophet. I am to be the bringer of knowledge uh, to a lost world. In John 16:13, and I, I don't want to go into this too much. I'll just give it to you in passing because this is the proper place where it falls. And someday you may want to, for yourselves, carry out a further study. But I am, I am in the place of prophet in the world. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you the things to come. And we're told here the Holy Spirit, we're told here the Holy Spirit will bring us into this knowledge. Well, now then, as Christians, we have knowledge. And here at Labry, we deal a lot with this. As Christians, we have knowledge. We have a, it isn't just a message we have. Uh, uh, that you are lost and you can accept Christ as your Savior. But the Christian should be the one to tell the, tell mankind what the world is like that surrounds it. What the world is like. The, the unsaved scientist, the unsaved psychologist may know many more details than we will ever know about his own subject. But because of his presuppositions, it will always lead him away from the basic truth of what's involved in these things. And the Christian is to say, no, you can teach me the details in the area of science. You can teach me the, the, uh, the details in the areas of psychology. But I'll tell you what it means in the whole. I'll be the last one to give you the word. Not because I'm wise, but because the Bible's told me something. The Holy Spirit opens it to me. Because I'm in I'm union with, uh, the, the, with the one true prophet, even Christ, uh, I can now be your prophet. Uh, I don't think we... I don't think we think enough about this. The older Christians did. The Dutch Christians do. The Orthodox Dutch Christians. But we, in general, are poor at this point. The Christians should, indeed, be able to tell the world you are lost. And this is the message of salvation. But the Christian isn't just to tell this one message. He has other things to say. He, he's to tell man who he is. Man says, who am I? And we are to say, you are made in the image of God. That's who you are. Mankind looks at the world and says, what is this? And we're to say what it is. He can tell us the detail, but we can tell him something. We can tell him something more, more profound than his detail. This is a created world. This has been created by God. He can say, what is the end of all these things? And he cannot know. He can make guesses. We can say to him, but the Bible's told us. We can tell you what the end of these things are. We can tell you the beginning. We can tell you the real purpose. We can tell you the end. Now, we all can't be experts in every field by any means, and we shouldn't try to be. But nevertheless, the Christian has a message as a prophet. 
Well, the Christian artist is to be a prophet. He has a prophetic message in his painting. The Christian person who studies art is to be the one who is able to stand in the art museum and explain maybe, maybe even to the artist who painted the picture all that's involved. So we must remember the, the fruit bearing, it's the fruit bearing that the Bible tells us about of, uh, in our union with Christ is not to be just seen, seen as, as an emotional thing, and nor even emotional thing plus a moral thing. So that's involved. But it's, it's a knowledge thing, too. The Christian is to be the prophet in the world. Now the Christian is to be the priest in it, too. The priesthood of all believers is one of the great statements of the Reformed faith. The priesthood of all believers. We're all priests. Because there is only one final priest, then all those who accept Christ as Savior are priests. The priest, according to the Bible, is not a person who wears a certain kind of clothes. The priest is everybody, man and woman, who has accepted Jesus as Savior. Now, Christ is the only priest. Christ is the one who died. His work is finished. He died once for all, and it was done. We do not, we do not add to his priestly work in substitution. But nevertheless, we have priestly functions, just as we, just as we have prophetic functions are with Christ bearing his fruit through us. We have priestly functions. For instance, in 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 2, 5 and 9, 1 Peter 2, 5 and 9. <coughs> and you also as lively stones build up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. They're not acceptable because of our goodness. They're not acceptable because of our virtue. But they are acceptable, God, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. But being acceptable, we are a holy priesthood right now, called upon to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Spiritual sacrifices. In Revelation 1.6. Revelation 1.6. And it's made us kings and priests and the God and his Father. Better translation would probably be a kingdom of priests. That doesn't change the idea. And Revelation 5.10. Revelation 5.10. And it's made us unto our gods kings and priests. Kings and priests. Now here, the question is, what is involved here? What is meant? Well, what we can say is, first of all, everything the Christian does is to bear the mark of the holy. In other words, when we, when we view the teaching of the Bible, we find that the dichotomy that we tend to make between the, between the secular and the spiritual simply is not in the Word of God. The other night when I was giving the lecture uh, and pointed out, reading from this Reformed writer, uh, the, what he said about Calvinism, uh, that we are to discharge our priestly function in every place of life. And he pointed out this was the basis of the tradition of locking the church. Because, because you're a priest just, you don't have to go into the church to exercise your priestly function. Working in the garden, you can exercise your priestly function. Everything is to be holy to God. Nothing is to be seen in secular in this thing. Nothing. Nothing. Every 
relationship of life is to be seen in secular. And not seen in secular, but in, in its proper relationship. We are a priest in, we are to be a priest and functioning in a spiritual fashion at every point. Not in our strength, but allowing again, he who is the great priest, by, to bring his forth fruit through uh, to us. If you can think of Jesus Christ living on the earth, he, his life was filled with what men usually consider secular things, and yet he approached it in each case, as you think about it, in a way that is whole, in a way that is to the praise of God. And, you know, that is the first thing to say. Our, our priestly function is not to, in addition to the finished work of Christ, that was finished. Our priestly function, uh, our priestly function is uh, quite different than this. We're to be the bringer forth of spiritual sacrifices in absolutely everything we do. Now there's one hour, there's a couple elements we can think of very expressly. God's presence. As he is marred with his own guilt, as he is separated from God by his guilt, he cannot lay hold of the promises of God that you have promised to hear me, and I demand that you hear me. But a Christian can. We can come and insist that God hears us. We have a right to do this. It is to his honor that we do this because we claim the finished work of Christ. In faith, we believe that our guilt is gone so, he, so we can come. And then we claim his own promises, his own oath, his own covenant. He has said we may come. Consequently, we have a right to come and say, Father, hear me. Hear me. Not now in a way, of course, uh, forgetting who he is. But we have a right to claim this because of what Christ has done, who I am as God's child. So I can come as the praying one in the universe. If I want to see this, if I understand this, this is a part of my priestly function, that I can come praying. And I am the prayer in the world, where the unsaved world, God may hear them in his, in his mercy, and he will always hear the cry of the unsaved man, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Maybe you'll hear other prayers if he knows, if he sees the human heart as of in a certain direction. But these have no right to come claiming the right to pray. We have. We are the prayers in the world. Then what a, what a magnificent, beautiful, and yet sober spiritual responsibility this is as, as, as priests. Now then, this praying is not just to be seen as, as a priestly function, is not to be seen only as a praying as intention either. We have another task in prayer. As we read in 1 Corinthians, uh, I mean, I beg your pardon, as we read in Psalm 141.2, 141.2, Let my prayer be set before thee as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So we are, we are the ones who can praise God in prayer out of this awful, awful maelstrom of the lost world. Here's the lost world, and the stench reaches to heaven. And as the stench reaches to heaven in its rebellion against God and its sordidness, in, the, in the, uh, the, total, the total blackness of so much that is involved, yet out of this maelstrom in the present life, there can be, there can be spots of praise to God as the Christian allowing Christ to bring forth his fruit through him discharges his priestly work. To visualize it as a visual thing. Here is a, here's the wide world in its blackness and rebellion. Think how it must look to God. And yet here and there, here is somebody who is in a position, being under the blood of Christ, letting Christ bring forth his fruit through him to be a point instead of blasphemy, now of praise. 
The angels in heaven must look for these places, I would suggest, if you think of it this way. So therefore, the Christian's priestly work is not is not just a romantic thing. It isn't just to be to, to be a word. We read it in, in Pauline epistles, priests, or in the uh, in the book of Revelation, or these other Peter rather, priests. We aren't just to to read this and think, isn't that nice? Isn't that a nice word? Isn't that nice? This is an awful way to read. It means something. And God will never work these things out mechanically. I am to be the bride. I give myself to the bride for all these things. Now, there is another calling in our priestly work, and that's Romans 12, 1 through 3. And this is a very sober word. The Bible full of sober words to the Christian as well as joyous words. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say to the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. But this is all inside the framework. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy, that's H-O-L-Y, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's not to be seen as something added, but it's what should be normal. After all, aren't we priests? Now, we cannot bring the sacrifice of Christ. That was a unique sacrifice. That cannot be added to but having said it, there is a sacrifice we can bring, as well as prayer, is the sacrifice of ourselves. The Christian by choice is to be the person who keeps himself upon the altar. And as I've pointed out sometime in more detailed studies, this is painful. It is a painful thing. It was considered a painful thing for Isaac to have kept himself upon the wood in the, in the time of Abraham, there on the mount. And that is our place. We are not to kid ourselves. There are certain painful things involved, certain thing of no, certain painful things in the living, the concept of a living sacrifice. All right, now then, Christ is our, we, Christ is our only priest, but we are priests. All men are priests. A pastor is never a priest. A pastor minister, he's a breaker of the word of God. He's a server. He is to be the one to teach men, but he's not a priest. Or to say it more thoroughly, he is a priest, but so is everybody else a priest too. This, this priesthood of all believers is something that, that has been so largely lost in our, in our poor view of the Christian faith as we often have it. Now what are we talking about? We're talking about our union with Christ, our mystical union with Christ, our identification with Christ. What I'm saying is these things are to be made real in the present life, and as we let him bring forth his fruit to us, it will take on the order of his own offices, prophet, priest, and then finally king. In 1 Peter 2, 9 again, we have already read this, but let's go back up with this in mind. 1 Peter 2, 9. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a royal priesthood. So it is a priesthood, but it is connected with royalty. Just as Christ 
Christ was the king and priest. Melchizedek was a picture of Jesus, king of Salem, king of peace, priest and king. So Christ is priest and king, but we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. And it would hardly seem necessary to say peculiar people doesn't mean we're to be stupid people. doesn't mean we have to make ourselves look peculiar. That isn't the idea, either in our mental equipment or our physical equipment. It's, it's a separate people, a specific people. That's what's involved. We're not to be peculiar if we can help it in, in, a, in, a, in a derogatory. There's nothing of this here. There's the cross of Christ to be born in every part of life. But this doesn't mean we have to deliberately make ourselves uh, foolish to people unless it is necessary for the sake of the cross of Christ. We're peculiar people. In order that you should show forth the praises of him, the virtues of him, it can be translated, who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are to be the demonstration of his virtues. Think of that. On what basis? On the basis of the finished work of Christ. But who are we in doing this? We are a royal priesthood. A priesthood, but a royal priesthood. And this, this carries with it the sense of, of a kingly work also. Now then, in Revelation 1.6, we find that our kingly work, however, will have special meaning into the future. We have a future kingly work, which will be very expressed, definite. And it's made us kings and priests under God and his Father. You notice the connection here again. Kings and priests. To him uh, be glory and dominion forever and ever. And then 5.10. 5.10, connecting this with 5.10, Revelation 5.10. And it's made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. This is an absolute statement from the Word of God. Verse 20, in the sixth verse, in the midst of the millennial reign of Christ, blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. These are not vain works. These are literal works. These are specific works. As you know, of course, I believe that this is the prophetic section of the body are to be taken according to his dramatical meaning and literally. We carry this out in our further study, much after this now, in our studies of eschatology, in another whole study entirely, two studies really, the principles of prophecy of 22 lectures and then the, using as an illustration the application of these principles to the book of Revelation. And there's no reason to think this is not meant to be literal. You are kings as well as priests, and there will come a day when your kingly function will be very, very crystallized. You will reign upon the earth with Christ for this thousand years. So now we, when Christ comes back again, we will have this place. Now then you see, as we take these things and bring them together, we have a mystical union with Christ. We are united with Christ. We are identified with Christ. As such, we are in the heavenlies now. This is perfectly right. The identification carries with it, of course, a certain amount, not only of joy, but of sorrow. Because Jesus, when he was on this earth, he was killed. He was spit upon. As a Christian, this too is identification. 
It is false to look for the identification of glory without the identification of suffering in such a world as which we live. And it is to be this living relationship of which these pictures, the bride and the bridegroom, the vine and the branch, the head and the, uh, the body, the foundation and the spiritual house built on it, the brother, the elder brother, all these living, personal, pulsing relationships. And then the fact that, however, this is not meant to be uh, mechanical or just sanctification in this regard is not automatic. 